You are now listening to the August 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. We're glad you could make it here with us today. This is Alan Heller and my wife, Polly. How you doing? Good. It's good to see you. And today we're going to talk a little bit about SMART goals. I don't know if you've ever run into the acrostic SMART goals, but uh, part of consecrating getting your marriage uh, together and, and making it a place that's vibrant is to actually plan. I find many couples don't plan more than a week ahead of time, and they're just trying to keep their head above water. But those who do plan for the future, both in, well, in all the seven areas of life that we talk about, uh, physically, financially, marital, parental, uh, psychologically, spiritually, and uh, missed one there. Uh, I think physically, I missed that one. But uh, we make plans in those areas, and one of the helpful things that I heard along the way in my management and leadership courses was to make SMART goals. That is, to, that uh, we're doing specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-sensitive goals. So that's specific, if you're writing them down, measurable, achievable, agreed and attainable, relevant, they're reasonable, realistic, you got the resources to do it, and then time-bound or time-based time uh, so that you actually put it on the calendar. When you don't put things on the calendar, it usually doesn't get done. So, Polly, let's talk about it in terms of marriage. Your goal should be to have a clear, specific... First of all, in our relationship, you are not the planner. I am not a goal setter. I know that there are things that I want and things that I like to do, but they're usually sort of vague, not really specific. Or if they are specific, sometimes they're not practical or I don't have the money to do them. And so they seem unattainable today, to me. You it's don't like, have the money seem, today. Yeah, it's the, like instead of planning uh, a year to spend, to save up our money to get this $1,500 item, <laughs> We're just going, I don't have it now, and I never will. They just seem like dreams, exactly. And I, when I don't see how they can be accomplished, right. then so instead of, of sitting down and talking with you and planning about how we can possibly do them, I just become discouraged and uh, negative and think, oh, woe is me. This is never going to happen. So... Let's just take them one at a time. The first one we're going to talk about is specific. They're, the goal should be clear and specific. Um, you really want to achieve it. But it goes into sort of like the newspaper questions. What do I want to accomplish? I need to be thinking about. Why 
Is this goal important? Who is involved in getting it done? Because you don't always have to do it. And where is it located? And which resources or limits are involved? And the truth is, everybody has limited resources. There's nobody on this planet that doesn't have limited resources. But there are those of us... Somebody, <laughs> Some of us have way, way, way bigger, <clears throat> uh, more expansive <laughs> resources. Some of us others. have expansive resources, <laughs> but, you know, the old joke about the guy who got stuck in this uh, cage and, and there was all this manure around, and the positive guy says, there must be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and the negative guy says, oh, there's all this stuff I have to shovel this manure. <laughs> So some of us have a little more positive view of goals than others. But uh, what do you want to accomplish? It could be as simple as we need to spend time in prayer once a day rather than we need to pray together. So the whole specific thing, when do we want to do this? So what time of day? Well, I have learned that Polly will be in front of the mirror in the bathroom for at least 20 minutes at some <laughs> point during the day. Don't give away my secret. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> They think all this is natural. <laughs> yeah, they can't even see you on this podcast. So she's afraid that you have a camera in the computer here. So, um, so you... I know she's going to be there. I used to think, you know, why do I always have to be the one to initiate? And yet, if if I don't if we don't if I don't initiate, then we're not going to have our time of prayer or reading her something in the bathroom while she's doing something else. Not <laughs> meaning her makeup, not the other things. So I chose that. I I know she's going to be there, so it's going to be consistent. I remember one year we decided. We are going to pray together as a couple, and we're not going to eat dinner before we pray. And so that was a definitely a motivator. Uh, we had some angry prayers during that time because we were hungry. But no, I'm just joking. But uh, we just sometimes would make a game of it so that it would actually happen. So being specific is important. Um, why is this goal important? I mean, we've had for years wanting to lose weight and uh, it's very easy. If you don't eat, you will lose weight. But somehow we like eating more than losing weight. So we have to work on specific ways to do that. What is our portion? Uh, what are we going to serve at our meals? Is it going to be vegetables or is it going to be a bunch of carbs and bread? Who's involved? It could be just me. It could be us. We may have other people if we're doing a construction project. Who's involved? Where is it located, uh, whether it's at the house or whether we're going on vacation and so it's located somewhere else, then we have to deal with plane flights and money to budget to save for next summer when we want to do a big trip or whatever. Which resources do we have? Uh, what are the limits? So how much money, how much time? You know, in our uh, ministry life, Polly, we've been fortunate to be able to have people that have given us tremendous, beautiful places. I remember one time we were, we had gone up to, our daughter played soccer for University of Portland, and so we always would go up there and go to watch her play, but we never would get outside the stadium and maybe a Starbucks uh, where Polly and she would read a book together or something waiting for the tournament or the game to start. 
But we never would see anything. So we finally um, decided that on the fourth year that she was going to graduate, we would take an anniversary trip and go down the coast of the Oregon coast and in a car. And uh, somebody had a place that was like right on the top of a mountain that looked over, like out of their bedroom, you could see the uh, Pacific Ocean. And that was beautiful. It was a fabulous place. And, and that was just offered up to us. And, you know, normally something like that might cost, I don't know, $500, $800 a night or something like that. So we were there for a couple of days and enjoyed this wonderful place. Uh, another time, somebody had a condo uh, at, in Hawaii and this beautiful golf course. And I had seen the pros play on that golf course. And it was like a dream <clears> that I had. And then the Lord had put us in touch with somebody who had a place, and they were willing to let us use it, and uh, it was wonderful. And so sometimes you have resources <laughs> that you don't even know you have, and we've been the benefactor of a lot of resources uh, that we didn't even know were there until the Lord, until we asked the Lord what we wanted, and. That's one of the things, you know, in Proverbs 16, 9, it says we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. But if we don't even ask and we don't even trust the Lord for things that we don't see can happen, then we never will get a chance to see those things happen. Yeah. And, you know, Alan is a, a ministry couple and we've been in ministry our entire marriage and started out even when we were engaged in 1974, we were both involved in ministry. Um, so many of our goals have to do with what does the Lord want us to do next? Where is our ministry going to take place? What what type of situation are we going to be in? And there were so many years when we wanted to do a retreat ministry. We, we wanted to be involved in speaking at retreats and hosting retreats. And we prayed so much about having a retreat center. It was one of our dreams, one of our longtime goals in life. We even had a few couples that we talked about going into retreat ministry with. We went one time to look at uh, a camp that had been a retreat center, and we were thinking about and praying about um, getting involved there, maybe purchasing it. And none of those things worked out. And as, as, as Psalm 37.23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And it's like what you were saying that we, that God is directing our steps. He's ordering our steps. He's showing us where he wants to go. And as we, as we make our plans and bring them before the Lord and pray about them, God is going to direct us in the way he wants us to go. And this whole retreat thing that we wanted to do for so long was one of his knows in life. He mm. just said, no, not now. And and now that I have multiple sclerosis, which it, it affects 
mainly my energy levels, I see that there that I could not physically handle the responsibilities of, of running a place like that. Hmm. So the next one is measurable. How do we make it measurable? It's important to have measurable goals so that they can be tracked and you can be able to see the progress. I, I have many people, you know, you can make a measurable goal in your attitude and in how you live your life. Somebody once said, uh, well, they were asking me, well, but spiritually, how do you do that? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So those things are measurable. My attitude of thankfulness is measurable. If I'm angry, rather than letting Christ control me, then I'm not walking in the power of the Spirit. So there are measurable goals even in the spiritual area, which we think are sort of ethereal and hard to measure, but um, but certainly the scale definitely tells you, measures the goal of weight. Time, uh, you know, usually all of us have 24 hours in a day, so you measure what you're going to do in that time. So one of the things people always ask me, are you busy? And my question is, not am I busy, everyone can be busy, but what are we busy doing? And so... Uh, measurable goals should be addressed by questions like how much, how many, how will I know when it's accomplished? So if you're saying you want your spiritual life to grow, that's a nice general goal. But to say, I want to memorize five verses in the next five months, one a month. I mean, I know some of you can do one a day, but for us slow people, but that's a measurable goal. Either I me have memorized the verse or I haven't. I remember one time we sat down talking about what do we want to do in terms of relationship with couples. And we listed like maybe 10 couples that w were in church that we really would like to spend time with. We tell them we want to spend time with them. And then we don't spend time with them. And so Paulie and I took out our calendar and we said... Let's take the top three or four couples, and over the next four months, let's put them down on a specific date, and then call them and find out, can they make that date? And if they can't, schedule a time when we can get together. But that's a measurable goal, and it was a great goal that year. We got to meet and see people in a way that we hadn't before, but we kept talking about it. It'd be nice to get together with that couple. <laughs> So how about you for measurable, honey? What are some things that have been helpful in our marriage in terms of measurable goals? Well, I think for me, it has to do with household projects, mm -hmm. things that I want to have done that um, maybe, well, one major thing for me was that our laundry facilities oh, yeah, in our house were in the garage and the garage was facing west and and we so live my in solution <laughs> my solution was get one of those little r2d2 air conditioners to fill the room we're you know we're in arizona and so 110 it would be 120 degrees in the garage but at least it brought it down to 100 <laughs> you know i just thought that 
It was so hard. All right. So doing finally, what happened? Garage. What did we have to do? Well, it we, was a major project. It was a major project, but because we talked about it and you understood how important it was to me, we set aside the finances mm-hmm. and and got a contractor who was able to figure out how to Take the Change. outside and make it inside. <laughs> yeah, how to bump out the wall in the kitchen and right. turn the wiring and the plumbing around so that we could turn our washer and dryer around to face the kitchen and build and be a inside and in have air conditioning. Right. But I remember what it was so funny because he said, "You know what's really interesting is you guys are taking your your laundry and putting it from the garage into the house, and I have another." couple that's taking their laundry from inside the house and wanting to put it outside in the garage. (laughs) So everybody's got different goals. And that's another thing, you know, don't compare yourself with somebody else in terms of the things that you want or don't, you know, you're trying to get, but be measurable. Ask how much, whether it's money, time, or manpower, how many uh, and ask, how will I know when it's accomplished? Because if you don't know when it's accomplished, it's not going to work. Well, a- and one of my desires is to write. I en- I enjoy writing. And um, you signed me up for uh, an online writer's group and a writer's course where the... Um, the host of the group, who happens to be Jerry Jenkins, tells everyone who's involved with it, you need to set aside time every day, every day mm. or several times a week. But you have that time that you do sit down and write and you have you have to set goals for your writing and know what it is that you're trying to accomplish or you're never going to get it done. You need to set a deadline for yourself when your book is going to be done. And if you don't have that deadline, you're just going to putter around and putter around (laughs) and not get it done. Right. So, I mean, there are other factors with these SMART goals. We've just covered the first two to be specific and measurable. The next time we'll talk about to be achievable, relevant, and time-sensitive so that you actually accomplish those goals. But um, lastly, in terms of both specific and measurable, it's, uh, there are other factors involved like motivation. Um, sometimes, uh, what is it, our, our co-author of our trust book, Ed Delf, says if the pain doesn't exceed the, um, the desire, you, you know, it's not going to get done. So when you have enough pain in your life, then, then fulfilling goals becomes very easy. Uh, so sometimes it's pain. Sometimes it's the joy of doing something will be the motivator for you to do it. Of course, all of us would rather have that mm-hmm. than, than uh, the pain. But for most people, if they've set any kind of goals, there is sacrifice involved, whether it's time, energy, or even the commitment in your, in your schedule to just uh, push away some things that you like to do. And somebody has said, you know, we have things that we either want to do or we don't want to do. And if you really want to do it, you can make an effort to do it. Right, but there's also the promise of the reward 
the accomplishment and what it is that you're going to have after you've made the sacrifices to get it done. And so, you know, some people put a picture on their refrigerator of, you know, this thin-looking woman that that's what they <laughs> want to be. If you want to have a great marriage, I mean, you need to come up with a picture of what that looks like. That picture is really in the Word of God. If you look at it and look at the verses on marriage and what the man's role is, what the husband and the wife's role is, and God gives us a picture of it, but you have to have the motivation to want to make it happen. And so uh, we'll look forward to talking again about SMART goals. If you want to get any of our resources, just go to walkandtalk.org, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K.org. And we have our trust book that we did many podcasts on on our website now. We have loaded up those podcasts. We have our Marital Mystery Tour book and the Triple R Notebook. So lots of resources for you if you want to take advantage and would love to have any questions that you might have about marriage or just how to walk your talk. You know, do what it is that you say you want to do and be who you want to be. We'll look forward to talking to you next time. Until then, we'd like to see you walk your talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is an attempted escape based on Jonah 1, 1 through 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the book of Jonah. I'm sure there are all kinds of ideas that come to your mind, right? Some of you are thinking to yourself, oh yeah, Jonah, it's a whale of a tale, right? Actually, what we'll find is, is there is a primordial fish that is going to swallow up Jonah. But I think that Jonah is such a good story that we can actually become distracted almost at every point from the main purpose of this book. We can become distracted by the fish, the plant, the worm that we're going to meet in Jonah. We can also get distracted by the great city of Nineveh. See, God sends Jonah to preach this message of just five words in the Hebrew to Nineveh, calling them to repent and turn from their sins, and we will see that they do. But don't lose sight of this. Jonah's message might be to Nineveh, but it is totally for Israel. So don't get distracted by Nineveh, but also don't get distracted by Jonah. He's not the hero of this story. He's actually looking a lot more like 
the villain as we follow the story throughout. See, Jonah is the prophet who really represents the best of Israel. And yet, as you follow along, you'll notice that he looks at every turn self-absorbed, narcissistic, racist at times, and self-righteous. See, God created Israel to image himself to the nations for their good as a blessing. Now, just to show my hand up front, I want you to know that I actually take Jonah to be a historical figure. Jesus seems to treat him this way in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 as he speaks about him. Jonah also shows up in the book of 2 Kings as an actual prophet. So if you look at 2 Kings chapter 14, you'll see a description or a mention of Jonah, this prophet of God who prophesied in Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, when you hear Jeroboam in the Bible, typically that's not a good thing. Jeroboams aren't typically good guys in the Bible. Jeroboam II is not necessarily a good king. But what we find is, is that when Jonah came to prophesy, he prophesied in an interesting time in Israel's history. Syria, Assyria with an A, Syria begins with an S. The Syria had defeated Syria. And so there was a kind of peace that broke out for Israel and Judah because Assyria just didn't care much about them at this time. And so Assyria, as they ignored them, we find that Jeroboam II actually was able to reign 41 years. And in 2 Kings 14.25, we find a description of his accomplishments. He, we are told there, restored the borders of Israel from Lebohemath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, catch this, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam II, and he expanded the borders of the kingdom, recovering land that had previously been lost to Syria. Things are looking good for Israel at this time as they looked at their borders expanding. If you were trying to understand what it would have felt like, I think it felt something like Dow was up, Nasdaq was up. The unemployment rates were down, employment rates were up. It felt like things were going really well for the nation of Israel. And yet, in 2 Kings 14.24, we are told that Jeroboam's reign was also characterized by that common description that we find of Israelite kings. We are told there that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his dad, which he made Israel to sin. So he led God's people into sin, not to image God as he had been called to do as the king with whom he had made covenant. See, Jeroboam II looked more like his dad, Jeroboam, than he looked like his God. His genetic DNA spoke more to his identity than that spiritual DNA. And he led Israel into idolatry and futility. He led them away from a meaningful life. See, the main point of the book of Jonah is really to remind his covenant people that he created them to image his glory to the nations. Their vision had become far too small for what they had been created for. And God here invites his people to repent and turn back to him so that they can become the the best versions of themselves, the God-glorifying people that he made them to be. And that all centers on how God's people respond to God's voice and his revealed will for their lives. Don't run from the will of God. Is that good? All right. Point one. First, Jonah fled God's will and God's presence. Now you'll notice the first words of this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. These are not the same words as you might hear a guy give to a girl when he says, you know what? I think the Lord has told me that you're supposed to marry me. 
Or the woman who turns to the guy and says, you know what, God just like told me, I didn't know this was going to be the deal, but that I'm not supposed to be with you. I'm actually supposed to be far away from you. That's not the kind of word of the Lord that we're talking about here. See, this phrase tips us off that God's given his prophet his words to take to Nineveh as a direct revelation from God. There's no mistaking that this is a word from God. He's not confused about it. He knows exactly that this is the very word of God, the oracle of God that's been given to him. And here's what God's word says. It says this in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. See, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. See, Nineveh was the self-professed great city. There's an irony here. God calls them a great city because they saw themselves as a great city. They were the capital of a great nation of Assyria from the time of Sennacherib, who is known as calling himself a great king. Do you see it? This is a people who really thought much of themselves. They thought they were great. And though hostilities had ceased, Assyria would later carry Israel off into exile in 722 BC, just a couple of decades after this was written. See, they were great in their own eyes until later Babylon and the Medes would conquer Assyria in 612 BC, just a hundred years later. But it was the greatness of Nineveh's sin that caught God's attention. Did you notice that? It wasn't their greatness as a people that God said, oh, I need to just take note of the greatness of this king and this great city and this great nation. He says, no, it's the sin of this people and its greatness that has compelled me to pay attention. But I often hear Christians speak of looking for a direct word from the Lord. And you might want to just be careful what you ask for. Because it could be that the word that comes to you is something that is terrifying. See, Jonah received a direct word from God to preach to his terrible enemies. And Jonah's problem isn't knowing what God's will is. Jonah knows what God's will is. Just imagine what it would have sounded like to the ears of the Israelites just 20 years later as Assyria is carrying them off into exile as they were reminded of the prophecy of Jonah about this very people that God called his messenger to go and preach to. They had to ask, did God really send Jonah to preach to these guys? I'm guessing that Jonah does what most Israelites would have wanted to do. He went AWOL. He went down to Joppa. Did you see that in the text? It's really interesting. I think he's picturing something here for us visually. He went down to Joppa to get away from the presence of the Lord of heaven. So God's up here and he's like, I'm going deep down to get away from him. So he goes down to Joppa. And then you'll notice he catches a boat to Tarshish and then goes down into the bottom of the boat He's going down deeper and deeper. Now, what's Tarshish? Well, geographically, Nineveh is to the east. And so, as you look at this, he should be going east, but instead, this boat is going to Tarshish, which is to the the west. So he is going as far away from the place that God has called him that he can get. He is getting far away from the will of God and the presence of God. So geographically, Tarshish is far from God. But not only that, we find spiritually, Tarshish is often used in the Bible as a place that pictures farness from God. In fact, Isaiah 66, 19 calls Tarshish the place where they had not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And so Jonah is thinking, where do I go? I'm going to the place where people haven't seen God. I haven't seen God in a while, and that's where I want to be, far from where God is looking at folks. 
And Jonah is running from God's word, both geographically and spiritually. He is running from God's presence. He is running from God. And don't miss this. Jonah not only rejected God's direct command to him, but he also rejected God's special revelation to him in the scriptures. I mean, has Jonah the prophet forgotten David's question in Psalm 139? Do you remember that? Where shall I flee from your presence or from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And he follows it with his answer. If I dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere to flee from the presence of God. Now Jonah's running not from God's omnipresent view or his omniscience and his ability to see him at all times. He is trying to run from the felt presence of God and the mission that he's been called to. See, Jonah ran from God's will and God's word and God's presence. And catch this, God's will is more dangerous to Jonah's will than it is to his body. That's his concern. Jonah has longings and desires. Those are the things that he's worried about, even more than the danger that's going to come to his body. And we'll see that as the, later, as the letter plays out. But he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Anybody ever had that situation in their lives? Yeah, few. Okay, the rest of you, it's going to happen. It's important to take note here that we are both Jonah and not Jonah when it comes to understanding God's will for our lives. Because we're going to have situations where we are called by God's word to do something that we don't want to do, but we need to make sure we understand what that will is. We don't need to be confused about that because there's a lot of confusion about the will of God. First have God's sovereign will. That's that secret plan of God that he has for everything in the universe. God's will will be done. It's his hidden secret will that's going to take place. But second, you have God's moral will. And that is the the will that's revealed clearly in the scriptures, in the Bible. We find the clear will of God for the people of God. It's not hidden. It's, It's shown. It's on display for us. It's clear. We believe the scriptures are fully sufficient to lead us to know God's will at all times. You know, we really believe that the Bible is able to lead us and equip us to do every good work that we need to do to be pleasing to God. That's basically what our understanding of the Bible is. That's the second will. But there's a third will that I'm just not so sure about. In fact, I'm pretty sure about how I feel about it, and that is an individual will that God has for you in your life. Now, what this means is there's kind of an individual plan that God has for your and my life that it's our job to decode. Now, catch me. I believe God has a plan for our lives, that he's meticulous in his sovereignty. But this says that we are actually sort of called to decode that will and not mess it up or things get really bad really quick, right? And not only that, sometimes it feels like we have one of those like decoder books. Do y'all remember those? Now, do you see how that could be a problem for like day-to-day living? I mean, what if you get lost in that labyrinth and you can't get back to like the center of what God has for you? Maybe that's you this morning. You feel like, man, I have messed up and God has abandoned me or I have abandoned God or something, but I feel so far from him. And you could spend your life paralyzed in fear, sensing that you've missed God and and you're destined for plan like B, C, D, or even worse. And every decision could cause you to drift further from God. And this is what happened to me in college. I actually had a girl that I had dated for a couple of years And she was like sensing that it was time for me to propose. And I had like really messed up by not doing it yet. And uh, she told me about it one day. And this was the line that she gave me. She said, so I know that God wants me to marry you, but I'm not going to do it. And I never want to see you again. Now, you can imagine how that hurt my feelings. But I'll never forget her words. And this is the thing that really messed me up. The part that ruined me wasn't the breakup, but that she had such crystal clarity on what God wanted for her and me. How did she know? And how did I miss it? How did I miss God? 
And I was depressed for months trying to figure out if I had missed God and if I would ever get back to the center of his individual will for my life. Catch this. The Bible doesn't speak of God's will for your life in this way. Instead, the Bible calls you to obey God's moral will as clearly displayed in the scriptures. The Bible doesn't call us to decode God's hidden will for us. The Bible calls us to be faithful to his clearly revealed will in the scriptures. And he promises that it is enough, the word of God is enough to live a life that is pleasing to him. So let me just offer really quickly some counsel on how you can run to do the will of God as a Christian led by the Holy Spirit. I just think this is critical so we don't misunderstand Jonah from the onset. First, this. Study God's word like your life depends on it. Because it does. See, God's word is life-giving and we are better for knowing it. God's word is our spiritual food that leads us to heavenly treasure. Our Bibles are God's direct word to his people in Christ. And if we know God's word, we will know his will for us. So just trust. Trust that God's word is sufficient to equip you for every good work and every good decision. If you start looking beyond the boundaries of God's word, and you start looking to hidden tea leaves and those sorts of things, you're going to start putting your confidence somewhere else than the voice of God. And we need to listen to and put our confidence and our hope in God's word above all else. Second, seek to apply what you know is true in God's word. Seek to apply. Did you know that faith leads to faithfulness? And faithfulness leads to faith. It's a beautiful thing. Like as you obey and trust God's word, you're going to find yourself growing in confidence in God's word. Here's the reality. That doesn't mean that you're always going to win when you obey God's word. Sometimes our confidence grows through learning that like, wow, I disobeyed God's word and I paid for it. And wow, God's true. Who knew that? Other times it's going to be that you obey God's word and you see the fruitfulness of it. And sometimes we'll obey God's word and it hurts, and yet we trust God that he is sovereign and good. We'll get there. But we become wiser through both victories and defeats, and God blesses faithfulness. I have seen that time and time again in the lives of God's people. They are faithful to his word. When it seems costly and it doesn't make sense, what God's word clearly says, they don't embezzle money when they're not supposed to. They show up to work when they promise to. They honor their employers. And go figure, people trust them. Like that's the way that God's word and his world works. Be faithful. And usually God blesses faithfulness. God always blesses faithfulness, but sometimes it's in ways that we don't perceive. See, it is God's will for your life that you are faithful. Third, pray constantly asking for wisdom from above like James 1 calls us to. But so many of the questions that we have that we're talking about are between two good options or maybe like two bad options. Both options are actually good in the sense of before God, they're not evil. And we're trying to discern what's best. Like, what do I do to honor God in this moment? And we need to discern what is best. And maybe God will give us an impression, but impressions aren't a trustworthy guide to the will of God. And sometimes impressions really are God giving you a sense of his pleasure. And it's great, but we need to make sure that we're always going back to the word of God for clarity, praying to him and asking for clarity and decisions. Fourth, seek godly counsel. We need to seek godly counsel up front and on the way, right? as we're moving into it. So don't miss this. You need wise Christians in your life, preferably in the context of your local church. You need brothers and sisters around you, men and women who can speak truth into your life. So let me just ask you this this morning. If your next big life decision were to hit today, like right after the service, who are you going to to get wise counsel from and you're desperate for it because you know it's going to be good? Who is that in your life? Who are the names on your list? You have like a a fave five, right? That you know that you could go to and would speak into your life. And if you don't have that, who's discipling you? Who do you trust? And what is it that you would need to change today 
so that you are investing in someone who is wise, who knows you, who is going to be ready to help you when life hits and you need to have help to seek the will of God in those decisions. Today is the day. Don't wait for the decision to pop up and then say, oh, now I need meaningful relationship. You need meaningful relationship before the decision hits. So who will love you enough to tell you when you're running away from God? Is there anybody in your life that if you're Jonah and you're running from God's will, they would actually say, guess what? You're running in the absolute wrong direction. I need to help you turn around and come back to Christ. I want to rescue you from the damage and the destruction that you're running into. Who would do that for you? I hope that you all, that we all have those people. Fifth, do something and trust God's providence. Eventually, we have to make decisions. That's just the way that this life works, right? You can't just sit and like say, you know what, I I can't choose what restaurant to go to, so I will just starve to death. We eventually have to make decisions. And we have so many choices today. When you know God's word, you really are listening close to God's word. And you're seeking God's face in prayer. And you're seeking to live faithfully. And you seek godly counsel. And when you, you really are trusting God with the decisions and trusting that he's not trying to trick you, right, out of your best life. When you really believe and trust that he is for you. We can trust Romans eight twenty eight, the providence of God, because it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That God is working out the details for you as you are seeking to be faithful to God. Isn't that great confidence and encouragement? That would have been a different scenario, right? Well, that's kind of what we find here in verses 3 to 10. We find that in the midst of this boat ride, a storm is hurled upon them by God. And it is the men that are the bravest at sea that have the most experience that are actually terrified. So take note here, professional mariners are afraid of a mighty tempest while Jonah sleeps like a baby in verse 4. Notice first that Jonah sleeps as the mariners freak. Verse 4 to 6 says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship out into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, and perhaps... The God will give us a thought to us that we might not perish. So take note, these professional sailors, terrified of the sea. They know nothing of the promises of God's covenants with Israel and with David. They know nothing of these. They are yet desperate for answers for what's going on here. In a way that Jonah appears not to be desperate at all. Now in the Near East, it's important just to take note of what water symbolizes. It's meaningful in the Bible and in an ancient Near Eastern context. Water represented chaos. It represented evil and separation from God, as opposed to land, which represented order and good things. So God is this personal creator who brings order out of the chaos in Genesis 1. Do you remember that? That's where the chaos is there when it begins, and yet God brings order out of it. You'll find that not only that, throughout the Bible, God demonstrates his authority over the sea and the waters. So in Job 9.8, God describes how unique he is and that he alone stretches out the heavens and it says that he tramples on the waves of the sea. I love this image. Chaos is evil and separation from God. And God's like, this is what I do on your water, right? Not intimidated by the chaos. He is sovereign over it. You'll remember Moses raised his shepherd's staff to separate the Red Sea so that Israel could run on dry land from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the wilderness to the promised land. 
And here too, God is sovereign over this chaotic sea. But notice how desperate these sailors are. They turn to works and religion to save them. Did you see that in the text? Like, what is it that they think is going to save them as they feel attacked by a God? They're like, works and religion. I mean, things don't change much, do they? You'll notice they begin by trying to save themselves through works or human efforts by hurling cargo over the the side of the ship, right? They're trying to work themselves into salvation. Like, hey, if we can just get this boat light enough, we can make it through. But what happens as they do that? As they're desperately seeking to be saved from God, as they're working hard to save them, you'll notice that they can't hurl cargo off the boat faster than God can hurl wind and water upon them. They can't keep up with God. And then they turn to religion, praying to their various gods, right? To no avail. Like, everybody pray to your God. We've all got different gods. Just like, let's send a line up, see if anything works. And you almost feel sorry for these sailors who are desperate for answers, but don't know where to go with it. And where's Jonah, the prophet, this mouthpiece of God? Where is he when people are desperate for salvation? He's catching Z's in the hull of the ship. This Phoenician cargo boat captain unwittingly awakens Jonah. Catch this. This is beautiful. With the very words God used to disrupt his comfortable life days before, saying, arise. It must have been like a nightmare. Like he hears that that sound of God's voice again, yet this time through this Phoenician boat captain. We'll find another thing here. Notice what happens next in verse 7. Pagans fear God more than Israel's prophet. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they casted lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, just to be clear, this text isn't encouraging you to cast lots to discover the will of God any more than the story of Gideon really is encouraging you to lay out a fleece to figure out the word of God. Both of these stories are are casting lots, which were kind of like dice. But take note that God's providence here displays itself in the lots being cast as revealing that Jonah's God is responsible for the storm. So Jonah describes him as a Hebrew, a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, just take note of that. This is a man who has good theology, right? This is good theology. This is not a small vision God kind of guy. This prophet says, who is my God? He made the heavens. He made the dry land and the sea. He is sovereign over all things. And I'm sure the captain and the crew are going, and so why are you hiding in the hull of our boat? I mean, great theology and bad living. I mean, what a great reminder for all of us that, man, you can have really good theology and just be really bad at living it out. Good theology does not promise good living. Now, it's hard to live well if you don't know God's word. But if you're one of those who knows God's word and you're not living well, I think that's a bad place to be. We don't need to be down in the bottom of the boat hiding from God. That's exactly where we find him. See, the God of heaven identifies Jonah's God as the supreme God, the ultimate source of all power and authority. And it's out of the mouths of sailors far from God that they ask in verse 10, what have you done? See, these guys know nothing of God's special covenant relationship with Jonah, and yet still they see how insane Jonah is more clearly than Jonah sees. But don't miss this. The significance of the language here is fascinating. Did you take note that it begins with God hurling a great wind upon them? 
And then the sailors are hurling cargo over the side. And then Jonah tells sailors to hurl him into the sea to save their own lives. Now, the image of a world drowning in chaos as God's prophet sleeps is powerful. Isn't it convicting? Now, it's not an exact application here, but you have to ask if there are people God has providentially brought into our lives who are drowning as we comfortably sleep in our comfortable lives because we don't want to be inconvenienced. The only one that can save them from the storm and the chaos and the wrath of God that is coming is Jesus. Now, when works and religion don't work, notice the sailors throw Jonah in in verses 13 to 16. And here we find, finally, God willed for us to have one greater than Jonah. I am so glad we were not left with just Jonah, the prophet that likes to sleep in the boat while everybody's dying. But here's what he says in verses 13 to 16. He says this. He says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and catch this, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now just take note that the pagan sailors call out to Jonah's God, begging him not to lay the guilt of innocent blood on them. Now, But just think about this. They've made every human effort to escape God's judgment, but they come to an end of themselves and their hopes and saving themselves. And that's when they obey the word of the prophet and make a sacrifice of Jonah, who is described here as an innocent sacrifice to save their lives. The one is sacrificed for the many. They pick him up and they throw him overboard into the chaotic waters, which immediately become smooth as glass. See, this demonstrates the sacrifice was pleasing to God. The storm stops. Just as Jonah said it would, the chaos stops. The storm stops. Verse 16 is fascinating. Think about this. The men were fearful of the storm in verse 5. They were afraid. That's a, a reasonable amount of fear. But verse 16 says that when God stopped the storm, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It's, it's even more interesting if you look at it in the Greek version of the Old Testament. See, Jonah adds a verb for fear with the noun for fear, to an adjective for greatly, like mega. That's the word, magan. And so he's essentially saying they weren't just afraid, they were double afraid, a lot, like mega a lot. I would say they were mega scared squared. They were terrified. Like this is a lot of fear. This is an otherworldly kind of amount of fear. Now what is more fearsome than riding a boat into a hurricane? Well, it's being confronted with the Holy One of Israel. See, Mark records his account of a story of another man in the Gospel of Mark who slept in a boat in the middle of a great storm as his own disciples feared for their lives. And his name is Jesus. In Mark 4, 35 to 41, she says, In both stories, they have a departure by boat, a violent storm at sea, a sleeping main character, a badly frightened sailors, a miraculous stilling related to the main character, and a marveling response by the sailors. Mark 4 offers another critical link beyond the ordering of Matthew. While the disciples are terrified of the storm, you'll notice that when Jesus calms the storm in Mark 4.41, it says this, and they, this time the disciples, not these pagans, right? The disciples of Jesus who have walked with him were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, you remember that the sailors responded by being mega scared, squared when God calmed the sea once Jonah was thrown in, the one for the many. That exact phrase is used in Mark 4.41 in the Greek to describe the disciples as being filled with great fear, mega scared, squared. Both stories climax, they climax both of them with greater fear at the calming of the waters than the storm that almost took their lives. Now that's irony. I just fixed the problem and you're scareder now. Why? Well, I recently looked at all of the uses of this phrase, which is just used 13 times over six centuries between the 4th century BC and 2nd century AD. Three of them are here in Jonah and Mark, this great fear that comes over them. And almost without exception, this phrase is used to describe the experience, a human's existential experience of coming into the presence of a God and almost always with reference to Yahweh himself. This is a unique, transcendent, otherworldly fear that is brought about by being in the presence of God himself. Now, this makes sense of Jonah 1 with the sailors understanding that God stopped the storm. But what does this mean of Jesus in Mark 4 when Jesus stills the storm? The disciples' attention, it is not on invisible Yahweh. They have laser-like focus on the man, Jesus, who they've been walking with. They should know of all people who he is. And in this moment, they say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The point is that Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. He is very God. They understand in that moment that this is a person who is very God before us, not fully, but partly. What other man could do what this man has done in calming the storm himself? He is the only one who can calm the storm. He is the only one who can bring peace with God. And he might have been asleep in the boat during the raging storm as disciples could not sleep. But in Mark 14, it was Jesus that was greatly distressed. Just 10 chapters later in Mark 14, it was Jesus that was greatly distressed and troubled as he approached the cross at Gethsemane. You remember that? Then it wasn't Jesus that was having sleep trouble. It was the disciples. As he approaches the cross, the disciples slept and could not stay awake, even as Jesus tried to keep them up. Hey, could you just stay up one more hour? What's wrong? Why can't you stay awake? I'm awake now. Why are you asleep? And when confronted with the cup of God's wrath, Jesus said, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Even when it comes to taking on the full wrath of God for you and me, he is the one greater than Jonah who doesn't hide in the boat, but who takes it willingly for the glory of God. He is the one who came to fully do the will of God in every way. And Jesus went alone to the cross, the one for the many, so that we might have peace with God. See, we deserve the wrath of God. We were running in our hellbound race, but it was God who came like the hound of heaven to save rebels like you and me. Isn't that good news? So don't miss this. We need more than a prophet or to know God's secret hidden will to please God. We need Jesus to do what Jesus did. What we need most is God's revealed will that climaxes and culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. We need the God who has willed to save sinners at the cost of his very own son, Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to bring us safely to God tells us that we can trust God, not just with our lives ultimately, but every single day between now and then. It's all because he paid the ultimate price for you and me. He held nothing back. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me encourage you to put your faith in this man, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, who then is this? He is the only one who can bring salvation to you. See, he is the one who came to die for your sins, to bring you peace with God, and who was raised on the third day to declare victory to all those who will believe in Jesus. 
that he died for you to satisfy your guilt before God and so that his just wrath would be satisfied in him that you might become a child of God instead of an enemy of God. This is the goodness of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus has the authority to save you. Only Jesus laid down his life to bear the wrath of God for you. There's none like him. Trust him today. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. For those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And the email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. God blessed me with a beautiful gift of a divine appointment this week. It happened at a doctor's office as I was waiting in line. I met a kind older woman who was standing right behind me, and we began talking to each other. During our conversation, I found out she just lost four members of her family, and had four funerals in one month. God filled my heart with His compassion towards her, and He reminded me of the following scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 
3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I received His comfort and healing in my season of loss. So I was grateful for this opportunity to share my testimony with her and asked her if I could pray for her. She graciously accepted my offer and began sharing with me about her faith in Jesus. Isn't our God so awesome to faithfully lead our steps? I was blessed by her testimony of God's faithfulness and her faith in His goodness. We had a wonderful time of prayer together as God comforted her with His peace and hope. After we departed, the Lord reminded me of the power of sharing a testimony. The Greek word for testimony is marduria, which means testimony, witness, evidence, and reputation. Jesus lived a life manifesting the Father's name to the men on this earth, as shown in His prayer in John chapter 17, verse 6, which says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The Greek word for manifest is phanero'o, which means to make visible, make clear, and make known. My brothers and sisters, what testimony of God do you carry in your life? And how would you like to manifest the Father's name in your world? Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Next scripture reading is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are forever grateful to you for lavishing upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm as a love gift from you, and for choosing us to be your very own, joining us to yourself even before you laid the foundation of the universe. Because of your great love, you ordained us so that we would be seen as holy and blameless in your eyes with an unstained innocence. For it was always in your perfect plan to adopt us as your delightful children according to the kind intention of your will. This is what you wanted to do, and it gave you great pleasure. Jesus, you are so rich in kindness and grace. that you purchased our freedom with your precious blood and forgave all of our sins. Through our union with you, we have been claimed by you as your own inheritance. Before we were even born, you gave us our destiny so that we would fulfill your plan. You are the God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in your heart. Father, open doors and give us many opportunities to speak about this gospel of your salvation and the message of your eternal kingdom in our world. Fill us with your boldness and send us to the world as your ambassadors. We desire to live our lives as Jesus did. truly manifesting your holy name and giving you all the glory in everything we do. Fill us with your grace so we will continually walk in your love and wisdom as we live before unbelievers and make the most of every opportunity to share your message of the truth through our lives of holiness and radical obedience. Let every word we speak be gracious, filled with your love and compassion, and tempered with truth and clarity, so we will be prepared to give the right response to everyone who asks about our faith. Father, revive us with your Holy Spirit and the power of your living word. as we press forward to serve your will and fulfill the eternal kingdom of God on this earth as it is in heaven. In your glorious name we pray. Amen. And wishes no.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.